to see Jesus. They noticed that some of the disciples failed to wash, to follow the Jewish rituals of hand washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands, as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of the many traditions they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked them, why don't your disciples follow our age-old traditions? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. And Jesus replied, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. They teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. And then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God, honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, it is all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own traditions. And this is only one example among many others. Then Jesus called the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It is not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. And then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd. And his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used. Don't you understand either, he asked them. Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. From within and out a person's heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, the kids are invited to go to kids church with Emily this morning. Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of elders instead of, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? 
There's a question about what's always been done, a question about how we've always gone about things, a question about sort of um, what gives the Pharisees power through this participation. And so I'm gonna, I want to read just a, a short sort of segment about Vaclav Havel, um, who's a sort of communist dissident, I believe in Hungary or Czechoslovakia, but um, uh, during that period. And, and he tells the story of the green grocer who goes through his day with the means of, of participating in all the signs of the time, and then what happens if he resists. Now, this is, um, in many ways, uh, when I read that passage about why don't your disciples uh, do what everybody else does, it made me think of this story. And so um, it might be a little bit of a leap, and the sermon will go other places from here, but it just stuck in my head. I stuck in my head, and I wrote it down the first thing when I started studying this passage. Uh, and so I'm going to read it, and then we're going to move on. But, but I think it's an interesting story. Havlaw writes about, and this is a summary from someone else of the story. The story's not long, but, but I'm reading a summary. Havlaw writes about a greengrocer who lives under a totalitarian regime in communist Czechoslovakia. He places in his window among the onions and carrots the slogan, Workers of the World Unite. He does it not because he agrees with the slogan, but simply because it has been done that way for years, because everyone does it, because that is the way it has to be done. If he were to refuse, there would be trouble. He does it because these things must be done if one is to get along in life. The message isn't directed to his consumers or to the Czechoslovakians more generally. It is directed to his party bosses. The message is, I am obedient, and therefore I have the right to be left in peace. This is not the green grocer speaking with his own voice. He is not saying the he means or really wants to say. He is living within a lie. The green grocer lives within the lie, doing what must be done without thinking. He becomes, to paraphrase, such a complete part of the lie that he no longer knows it's there. Havel says this is easier than we think to settle for living within the lie, to succumb to the profane tribalization of our inherent humanity, to merge with the anonymous crowd and flow comfortably along with it for down the river of pseudo-life. In this situation, when we have fallen into a team of passive acquiescence, Havel says is what is required is a radical break. He invites us to imagine that one day something in our green grocer snaps. And he stops putting up the slogans merely to integrate himself. He stops voting in elections he knows are a farce. He begins to say what he really thinks at political meetings, and he even finds the strength in himself to express solidarity with those whom his conscience commands him to support. In this revolt, the green grocer steps out of living within the lie. He rejects the ritual and breaks the rules of the game. He discovers once more he is suppressed, uh, once more his suppressed identity and dignity. His revolt is an attempt to live within the truth. Of course, the power structure will respond. Ancients will come after him. Consequences will be imposed. The green grocer has not liberated society by any means. What he has done is all that he could have hoped for. He has initiated a struggle. When he snaps, he breaks. Through the exalted facade of the entire system, it exposes the real base foundations of power. By his actions, the greengrocer has addressed the world. He has enabled everyone to peer behind the curtain. He's shown everyone that it is possible to live within this truth. 
that summary of that story just stuck to me from that, that, that sort of passage is why don't your disciples live within the lie? Why don't your disciples continue to live into that story, continually putting up the sign, continually doing these things? And what he describes at the end is this type of invasion that Jesus brings too, this break into the new world this break, and to see behind the curtain of things, to see truly what they are. Often when Jesus works with the law, he's, he's often pointing out that here is how we've understood it, and here's what it means beyond that. Christians, I think, have incorrectly begun to sort of throw off these, these previous understandings as sort of saying, oh, they were wrong, or oh, they're no longer necessary. But what actually happens is Jesus is showing the fulfillment of what those things meant. Now, at this time, the Pharisees are, um, they've, they've enacted a fence around the law. I've read enough about the Pharisees that you can read them uh, culturally from our day as conservatives. You can read them culturally from our day as progressives. You can read them culturally from our day as liberals, depending on which, which conflict is going about, which suggests that's not the best way to think about the Pharisees if, if all those readings are possible. But what they have done is, is sort of erected a fence around the law to say that, okay, the people in the temple are supposed to wash their hands. If it is good and right for us to wash our hands when we're in the temple as priests being near God, why shouldn't everybody wash their hands in this way? And so in this way, they've sort of compounded upon God's law. They've created, and you'll see this in other passages where Jesus confronts the Pharisees, is they some sets, in some sense said, we get right with God, we get pure, we achieve this way by not breaking these commands. And so what they've done is they've set up a fence around the commands to keep people from getting that far down the road. They have this way of sort of keeping people from going to that place. And so this, this story for today um, from the Gospel of Mark, um, as we've been going through it, this is the seventh sermon. Next week is Transfiguration Sunday, which means the Wednesday after Transfiguration Sunday is Ask Wednesday. Uh, that note is in your bulletin. And then we start Lent, which is our journey towards the cross. Uh, we sort of walk in the second half of Mark's Gospel, as, as we've seen in my beautiful picture before, one through eight, Jesus' ministry about Israel and in the country, and then nine through the end, he sort of directed himself towards Israel. And it's Peter's confession of faith from human lips, who Jesus is, who do you say that I am, I'm, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, that prompts Jesus then to know it is his time to go to Jerusalem, it is time to go to the end. The end is alluded to in this story as well, is that the Pharisees come down from Jerusalem. That's where this story is going. This story is going towards the cross. It is going to resurrection. It is going towards that Easter message. And so even in these stories, there's links to it. But, but notice to, to say that after Transfiguration Sunday, we'll spend the next part of our journey in Mark in that second half of the story. All the readings will come from 9 to the end, to 16, um, up until Easter. And then after Easter, uh, something. <laughs> I have a plan, but it's not that important for today. Um, uh, but that's the shape of Mark's story. That's the shape of how we're worshiping with Mark through this season and moving in that ways. Um, but, but this conflict here also mirrors in a different way of what going, what's going on in Mark's story. Um, what happens here is that, is that Mark, we just did the feeding of 5,000 last week. And what happened there was this healing of blindness, 
We're going to talk about blindness in the second half, but blindness and deafness are, are not just healing blind and deaf people in Mark's gospel. It's saying that the world, us, people are blind and deaf to what God is doing in Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus heals a blind or deaf man, he's benefit for them, but it's also an instructional lesson for us. How do we live in spiritual blindness and deafness? And so these stories also often come before revelatory moments. Anyways, in between the two feedings, there are similar stories of, of healings of blindness. There are similar stories of, of teachings and conflicts with the Pharisees. And then there are similar stories of uh, walking on water and um, stilling the storm and such. These things sort of mirror each other. And what scholars think that Mark is doing in his editorial hand as he's combining, combining these true stories about Jesus is showing a pattern about what Jesus' ministry was among Israel— as he feeds these people, and then showing what Jesus' ministry was to the Gentiles as he feeds these people. The second feeding takes place more in Gentile territory and less in Judaic territory. Interestingly enough, uh, we're not going to preach on that story um, with the woman uh, Jesus calls a dog and then this, that, and the other, but you can see how that fits within that arc too. Again, if you just read that story abstractly or out of context, it it seems pr particularly harsh, but if you read it about how Jesus is expanding this movement from Israel where it started towards the Gentiles, the exchange more looks like a clarification of Jesus' mission and the faith of the Gentiles than it looks like um, harshness from Jesus. Um, and so that's the shape of sort of these two passages. And so this one fits in the middle of it. The, the struggle with it is um, it's like a joke, and I, I suffer from this myself. It gets worse the longer you take to explain it. Um, so Mark, it wants to teach us about what tradition is in Israel. But to do that, at the front of the passage, the first four verses, he has to explain why the Pharisees are this way, what it's the it's been participating in. That's to the extent to which it's like a joke, okay? <laughs> I don't mean it's supposed to be funny. Um, uh, it's just, it, he has to explain, get us into the story, get us into what's going on in this time and place. And so we've talked about how the Pharisees had sort of set up this law, this way of sort of looking at the law in this way. And it, the question is, and this is important because at Defiance Church, we, we have or one thing, our mission to be a witness to the reign of God, reconciling all things, three things, which is the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, which um, we understand in sort of faith in this past sense in which God has been good to us, um, hope in this future sense in which we await that consummation, um, and love, which is what we do in the present as we live with Jesus. So there's that. And then the five, um, order uh, and tradition and confession, and word and table are sort of what make up the next five. And those are sort of distinctives here. And they're meant to be ways in which we can sort of live out of this place. I mean, the number of pastors I say this to, they really like it, and I don't think I say it enough here, is that all the stuff we do here is meant to be a pattern to go into the world. So we read scripture here. It's a pattern for you to read scripture in your daily life. We worship and confess God here. It's a pattern for you to confess God into those broken areas of the world, into your households, into daily life. We practice tradition here in this way in that we acknowledge that there are things before us that we haven't invented ourselves anew and we're not creating the world within our own sp uh, specter all the time, and that's a way to live. Uh, word, 
I think I had them all. Order. Uh, order is the one I really like because it implies disorder. All of them have opposites if you think about it. And that one could have been beauty or peace, which it would imply ugliness or violence. Um, but it's this way in which we try to worship in, in divine sort of order. And then that brings uh, us out into the world to sort of order things in some ways. It'd be more that classical way of thinking about those things. Uh, but tradition is perhaps the, the challenge today with this passage. You worship according to the traditions of this. So now we're down to four. I just canceled that one. Now, um, what happens in this passage is, isn't, isn't entirely an argument about tradition. It's an argument about what makes a good and faithful Jew in response of seeking purity with Jesus. Now, tradition shows up positively in Paul's letter and other parts of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. So here, if you're like, aha, this is, this is the end of tradition, you're misreading the context of the passage. Um, uh, it's about what makes good and faithful Jews. And I love it that says, uh, the Pharisee says, um, we've been doing this forever. Um, uh, on and on. That was in uh, Chris's translation. It just, tradition sparks so fast. Um, and nostalgia sparks even faster. Kelly and I went to a church that was like five years old in Seattle for a while. And they had used to meet in a coffee tea shop they ran. And they would always tell us it was so much better when we met in the tea shop for 18 months, three years ago. <laughs> like, like this, the, the Pharisees, they've been doing this for some time, but we get like very quick to these things. It's always been that way, oftentimes when you, you're talking with family in particular, because that's the way it goes. And you say, when did it start? And they're like, four years ago, but it's always been that way. Um, uh, the Pharisees here are playing that same sort of hand, is that, is that it's always been done this way, that we wash our hands in this way. And so this is, this is their sort of way of saying that, you know, here's how we become faithful in this context, is, is by hyper-observing God's law, by applying God's law even to the household beyond what it is. And that, interestingly enough, is not really... As Jesus responds to them, his, his problem isn't entirely that they've tried to make people holy like priests. He replied to them, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God are holding on to human traditions. Um, that this is the passage from the book of Isaiah that Jonathan ran, read too, is that what Jesus responds with is that the people, God's way of, of, of instructing Israel in the Old Testament has um, two kind of forms, if you want to think about it. One is these ritual laws, ritual things that they're supposed to do to set themselves apart then there's also these sort of justice fulfillment things that they're also supposed to do. These two things exist there. And, and when we went through the Torah, we used to talk about how the, the Torah, some rabbis say, is, is the thing. And the rest of it is commentary on the Torah. So what are the Jews is contained within the Torah. How are they um, instructed in failing and living these teachings? More often failing than, than doing well at them, but... Needless to say, same with us, by the way. Um, 
that they, uh, it's the commentary on that. And so what emerges from that is this prophetic tradition, which is what Isaiah is, which is, says to say is that God instructed you in these ways so that you could be near to God. And what you've done is you've taken them away from what they meant to provide. Or oftentimes you've ignored how it's supposed to be for people. Now in Mark's gospel, this takes perhaps the, the biggest point around the Sabbath, which we talked about, the, the notion of sacred time and sacred space, that there was, there was this question of whether Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was meant to point to our restoration in God. And so if the question is, can you restore something that is broken on the Sabbath, as that's what the Sabbath is supposed to point to, the answer is yes. And so Jesus is, is in his ministry is pointing out this sort of dysfunction within uh, particularly the Pharisees at this time. There, there is no one Judaism at um, uh, this time in ancient Israel. There are various different sects. Although I don't know if there are, Christianity's kicked that up to a whole new level of, of the various number of different places you can practice the faith. So, um, you know, they might have had five. We have 5,000. So, um, uh, Human nature doesn't change that fast. Um, but anyways, <laughs> this pharisaic tradition is the one that Jesus seems to come into conflict with the most, the scribes, the Pharisees, um, less so than the others. Um, but his correction on them is sort of this way in which their lips are always near God, but their hearts are always far from them. It's where the Old Testament talks about the circumcision of the heart as well, not just uh, the foreskin, that there's this way in which God is aiming to restore a people in a different way. And what happens is, is that they're trying to use sort of rules and mechanisms to do that. Now, if you remember back to the fall, our, our sermon series through Galatians, Paul uses, in Galatians, uses a sort of a powerful argument in that it was never that way. Like, if you read the stories, it was faith by which Abraham is called. It is faith by which these things are done. And, and our human effort has not been strong enough with the law to bring about our justification, our reconciliation, our home, wholeness. Uh, that's his main argument. So he then suggests that we need Jesus in this encounter to sort of do that for ourselves, that we need some intervention there. Needless to say, this is how Jesus responds to them in, in sort of bringing up this prophetic tradition. He goes into this story about this practice of, of Corbin, uh, which is uh, casting off, um, I'll explain that in a second. Here's what he ends that passage, the passage about Corbin with. This is, uh, it's hard for us again, this is one Mark could have explained again, but there's this way in which you could, you had two commands in the Old Testament. You had the command to honor your mother and father uh, in the Ten Commandments, and then you had the command that if you made a vow to God, it could not be broken, it had to be fulfilled. And so at this time, and it's not quite clear how common this is, but I think this is more a story for Jesus to say what's happening with the way we think about the law at this time, the Pharisaic tradition, is that um, a person who for some reason didn't want to care for their parents as they get older— and which is an odd thing that we forget about, the honor of your mother and your father. It'd be great if my kids listened to me more, but in this society, it was more important that they cared for you when you got old. Um, there were less homes, less places. And once they've inherited your land or this stuff and the other, they could ritually sort of abuse you or take you out of it. So, so that lesson is not just like, kids, listen to me. Uh, that lesson is for society to work well and to be just, elders need to be cared for by their children. Um, Parents need to be cared for in that way. 
So what a child could do who didn't want to share the, what they had inherited or the wealth that they had been given with their parents is declare it an offering to God. All right, so which one of these wins? Is it true that you have to honor your mother and father, or is it true that you have to um, follow all of the offerings, the things first, um, that you give to God? Now, you could see where the Pharisees perhaps make the air here is, is certainly, uh, if I'm willing to say I'm doing all this for God, this is for God, um, and make that offering, I would be cheating God if I walk back, Right? Whereas if that means my parents don't get the care that they get, I would be cheating my parents. Now what Jesus is going to say in this passage is that's robbing, what is it, the, you've let go the, let's see, um, I don't think I have the passage up there, that, that these people, uh, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. They empty the thing of its point. That, that this way of saying, I'm offering this to my God so I don't have to do it for my parents, I'm exempt for caring for my parents, is emptying the commandment of what it was meant to do. And even more so, again, you can understand how they got there. There's enough teaching in the Old Testament that God is not fed by human hands, that God is not cared for in these ways. And so God gave us the law, this Ten Commandments in this case, as a grace to us. And using the Corbin passage, declaring something an offering of God to neglect yourself, to get yourself out of that grace to us, is actually more offensive to God. We're emptying it of what it was meant to say and do. You know, it's, a, it's, it's interesting because oftentimes we have this picture of Jesus walking around ancient Israel telling them, oh yeah, that's all wrong. <laughs> but what he's actually telling them is, you're very literal, um, and you're missing the depth at which it was meant to point to. You keep taking these things and putting them in context as if this is the way that God is pleased. And this passage goes back to the heart again as he goes through it. Jesus' anthropology, his understanding of the heart, it's not particularly positive. Um, uh, reading it this week, it caught me off guard, um, what he understands that as. But this is what the Pharisees has done. They, they had pulled, this, this story is a story of what they're often doing, is they're pulling the commandments from what they've been meant to be. And Jesus says to the crowd, listen to me and everyone understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them, rather is it what comes out of a person that defiles them. Now there's a question here of, of is Jesus completely throwing off the law, which is not exactly what he's saying. He's saying that the notion of what is going to defile you is what comes out of who you are. It comes out of the center of this place, this heart. And in the ancient Near East, and all the way up until... Um, it's died. Can you hear me? Okay, I'll talk a little bit louder. Um, now it's just... Uh, Going to come in, cut 